Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a journalist and author who's worked as literary editor for the Evening Standard and the Sunday Times and spent 20 years at The Independent. Growing up in South London, his Irish parents' medical background meant that their library was full of medical books and Irish folk tales. He was a voracious reader from a young age and brought his passion for literature with him throughout his career in journalism. He's chaired the judging panel of the Ford Prize for Poetry and appeared regularly on the Radio 4 literature show The Right Stuff. His 2007 novel, Sunday at the Crossbones, was shortlisted for both the Desmond Elliott Prize and the Bollinger Everyman Woodhouse Prize. His latest book, Circus of Dreams, is a memoir about the UK's literary scene in the 1980s, and I absolutely loved it. John Welsh. Welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you. Thank you, Georgina. Uh, this is such a great book, particularly for anybody who's worked within the British literary kind of landscape. But even those who don't know these people personally, they will have read them. They will have been familiar with all of the characters. And it's absolutely wonderful getting this in-depth look. And one of the things that you tell us very early on in the book is that you decided you had a literary ambition and you were going to be literary editor of the Times by the time you were 35. And in fact, it was the Sunday Times that finally fulfilled that. What was the reason for that? What was the impetus for your literary ambition? It's a very trivial thing to say, but um, I'm afraid it was actually going to a party in 1982. And um, I've been reviewing a few things for... uh, minor things for a, a business magazine. I found myself straying into a business magazine without knowing anything much about the subject. You know, you suddenly take a wrong turn in your career and there you are gazing at all kinds of friends you've made at university and after who are suddenly, you know, themselves becoming literary people. And uh, and that one one evening, I met some people from Books and Bookman magazine. And um, I took to the magazine. It was It's very old-fashioned. It was full of um, people, uh, reviewers and writers called, you know, Lord Moncrief of that ilk and Terry Posh, <laughs> uh, well-connected sort of peers of the realm, all writing for us. It was very grand. But the um, the editor, Sally Emerson, was so charming and her deputy and I um, made, uh, made common cause and had several children later on. And it was a kind of <laughs> weird, life-changing evening at the centre of which was a really fab party at uh, Lord Macmillan's house in in Chelsea Square and I just came away thinking this is fabulous this is really gorgeous and thereafter the whole appeal of literature I was always I was mad keen on literature was I I did a degree at Oxford and then Dublin in uh, Anglo-Irish studies it's all about literature and I was devoted to, to Joyce and Beckett and uh, really abstruse writers like that. But just being in the swim was an absolute revelation. And writing for Time Out and feeling you were rather a kind of groovy piece of work for doing such a thing, writing for the old-fashioned mag and the new-fangled magazine, and going to these parties and realising what you really wanted to do was meet some authors. And so I asked the magazines, both of them, if I could interview some, this one, that one. And so I found the absolute joy of um, encountering someone whose work you really like. And taking them out for uh, for a drink, uh, Graham Swift. When I read Waterland, it was an absolute revelation. I couldn't believe this extraordinary combination of Dickensian description and and Beckettian self analysis. An amazing book. And I took the author out to um, the County Arms uh, beside Wandsworth Prison, a most unglamorous occasion for a, for an interview. But he was so charming and modest and shy and bespectacled. He'd been to Dulwich College and absolutely hated it. And he was just so kind of honest and charming. And we got st- astonishingly drunk. But it was in, as an interview. It was full of revelation and full of chat and full of, I mean, it was a very, very human encounter uh, with somebody whose work I admired. And it seems, you know, it's, it's taken an awful long time to work out that 
crises are actually human beings who are extremely fallible and spend all day with a, a room full of ghosts around them. But I just entered that world in that curious way in 1982-83 and it went on from there with all these other people. And at exactly the same time, so many different things were happening in the, in the, the book world, the publishing world, the uh, book selling world. Lots of different things were happening to make this kind of explosion. So there's a wave of new writing coming along, which I'd only just spotted in the very early 80s, combined with all kinds of initiatives that are starting up to bring books to far more readers and to serious readers. And I do say transatlantically... And I may see, maybe you'll stop there or I shall <laughs> well, I mean, finish the so, entire programme. There's so much to dive into there about all the changes that were taking place in the literary landscape at that time. And you talked about new writing and, of course, Granter and their best of British and they showcase these young new writers. Chief amongst them, of course, Martin Amos. Uh, he was a, a great hero of yours, really. Well, I'm afraid that some of the reviews said, oh, God, you know, Walsh starts the book with a kind of fanboy gush about Martin Plumin Amos. You know, so kind of like, <laughs> how pathetic is that? Do you know, if you're 19 at an Oxford college where Amos has only just left it and everybody's talking about him and you just can't help pick up a bit of hero worship and then you realise that you are in the same study, the um, my tutor's study, where Martin Amos would have been sitting almost exactly um, a year earlier and this kind of weird tremor goes through you, <laughs> which you haven't felt since the days of the Lone Ranger and, uh, you know, John Edridge at the uh, Wacky 100 at the Crease. And it's, do you know what, that kind of, it's a boyish thing. I'm sorry if it's a fanboy gush, but, you know, it was something that was, that was like an electric charge going through. And I read the dead, uh, I read um, sort of the Rachel Papers, his first book, which he wrote just after leaving Oxford at the age of 21. And it was, of course, it was, it was stunning. It was very rude. It was extremely sexist. And these days, it, does, it turns out, you know, Georgie, you know, it's, it's a, one of its biggest fans is Dolly Alderson, who went on a good read and chose the Rachel Papers, despite its extremely disobliging descriptions of vaginas, which he's curious <laughs> obsession with. Um, and it was gloriously funny and thrillingly, thrillingly written. Yeah, it really oh, was. I mean, God. I remember it coming out then and just being electrified by this novel. I'll tell you one thing about trendiness. Uh, when the second book came out, The Dead Babies, it was called, the publishers, uh, the paperbackers refused to allow to publish a book called that, so they Changes to dark secrets to make it sound like a box of chocolates. Anyway, Dead Babies came out. It was so well received by the uh, the young groovy readership out there. I spotted these two chaps of my age walking around carrying it the way we used to carry LPs at school. You know, just to show how cool we were. <laughs> we, carry, we carry the first King Crimson album, just you know, about on the way to give it back to somebody we borrowed it from. But actually, just to say, have you seen this? I'm such a groovy person. Dead Babies looked with a black shiny cover with a kind of red a slash of red and yellow and it was looked just looked the, the, the most wonderful thing and it suddenly that's what was picked up on by various publicity departments that you could have more or less urge younger people that in buying a book could be just as much a statement of how cool you were as buying an album mm. and it was an extraordinary little kind of shift of sensibility in that period yeah uh, and martin well you know he'd written three books before three good novels before he was 30 it was an absolutely extraordinary thing and um anyway i just watched everything he did and thought holy cow uh, he, I mean, an absolutely amazing writer. Now, you talk about his um, perhaps not having feminist credentials that we would expect from our writers today. But, of course, what there also was at that time was an explosion of, of feminist publishing, if you like. Uh, Carmen Khalil, very much at the forefront of that, Rosie Boycott. Tell us more. Well, the actual the, the heyday of feminism was actually slightly before that. After the female unit came out, that was in 1971, I think, 
Um, uh, Cummins had invented Virago around the same time with these other extraordinary, brilliant, enlightened, clever women who are also good businesswomen at the same time. There's, <laughs> there's no point in being, you know, having perfect feminist credentials if you are not able to turn a profit. And Virago just went from strength to strength and picked up loads of fans and readers and then did a brilliant thing of having the uh, Virago, well, the historical fiction. They actually went back to people who were writing in the 1920s with a feminist slant and resurrected them from all over the world, from America, Australia and all kinds of places. And suddenly, there was these, in these wonderful, nice, dark green spines, there was a signal of, uh, of, of brilliance of women in the 20th century. It was just a fantastic shorthand for read this book by Rebecca West, read these titles here. They came out in the 1900s or the 1920s, and they're still relevant today, and they're really brilliant. Uh, so it was an astonishing, astonishingly brave and bold venture, which paid off and made loads of money. And then Carmen um, went sort of mainstream when she joined the board of Chateau and Windus. And uh, I think some people raised an eyebrow that such a such a good uh, directional publisher should should expand her, her kingdom like this. But it didn't matter because Carmen was a brilliant piece of work. And mm. she signed up some wonderful non-fiction as well, like, say, Michael Holroyd's biography of Shaw in three volumes, which was, I think, 650,000 quid advance. Unbelievable, but that was the time. You know, people backed their judgment. Um, agents were very sharky about asking for large advances, and um, Rice's, if they were good enough, and Holroyd's the absolute, you know, Naples ultra of biographers, he was good enough. So, you know, that was one of the triumphs of Carmen getting to this high position and remaining a top feminist publisher, but also looking around at more general markets and uh, making lots of triumphs there too. And of course, the way books were being sold changed completely with Tim Waterstone. Yeah, Tim Waterstone, what an extraordinary man. He he was studied English at Cambridge under F.R. Leavis. But his first he, he became a businessman. His first um his first business ventures were in the drinks industry. And then he joined W. H. Smith as a middle range um executive and looked around and thought this is terrible. This is the, the main bookshop chain in England, and it is devoted its time to selling things that are already bestsellers and just sort of reinforcing you know, its already success. But that and gift books and stationery and toys and, you know, what on earth? And he, what I want to do, he said, is to cram a shop three times the size of a W. H. Smith shop with books from every single genre, including art books and, uh, and decorating books and um, uh, and a huge poetry section and a big uh, play section. And, you know, I want to just cram the joint with people who know what they're talking about, of clever graduates who can discuss things with, you know, like as if they were in the, in the junior common room at some, some top university. And I will cram the, play, the from floor to ceiling with books of every kind that people might want to read and rather just to buy for their granny. And um, I'll keep the shops open. He said, um, I could not believe that you know, W.H. Smith's kind of shut on Saturday lunchtime, so that was it. So he decided to keep his shops open all day until 10 o'clock at night, including Sundays. And it was a revelation. Uh, so there's another uh, Leavis connection, because a, a student of his and, and a great fan of his was Howard Jacobson. And, of course, you are a friend of Howard's. And there were so many big literary beasts like that who were really coming to the fore at the time. Uh, yes, yes. Well, um, well, Howard is amazing. He's uh, I, when I met him, he was forty already, and therefore didn't qualify for the you know best of young British under under forty. But he was he came out of the traps in the most extraordinary way with coming from behind his first book, which is extremely Jewish and extremely academic and incredibly filthy, um, as the, from the title onwards. But he managed to write in this extraordinary style I can only describe as kind of um, you know, 18th century kind of 18th century as rather correct, rather sort of um, uh, rather ornate and. Um, 
um, it's just full of wit in the old style of wit, um, the George Johnson meaning of wit, which is just a, a fantastic polish to all his sentences. He was extremely uh, funny. Uh, but he, he had a terrible rouse with Carmen Khalil, as you mentioned already, because she, she said to him once, I really, I just do not know how I could promote you. I just, you know, it's just everything about you, really. I don't know how I could promote you. If you ran stark naked down Baker Street, I wouldn't know how to promote you. <laughs> I said, what? What did you just say? But he was, he was amazing. He just, uh, he had a modest sale with the, with the hardback of his first book. And then the brilliant people at Black Swan, which is an offprint of um, Trans World Publishing, they picked up on it and they put a caricature of the author on the cover of the paperback and they sold 300,000 copies. It was one of those crazy succeeder d'esteem where, where everybody picked up on the fact that it was a clever, jaunty, fabulously witty and sort of sparky and quite rude new voice to match Amos and the others. Um, the only trouble is Howard didn't want to join the others. He didn't want to be part of the what he perceived as the clique of young young London writers. You know, he said, my, my ambitions were to be like like Lawrence, like, uh, like like Henry James. Mm. I don't want to be part of this kind of crew of uh, Johnny Come Latelys. He was quite sort of rude about them, but it didn't matter. He was an absolute genius. He was a genius at all kinds of things. And, and still is. Brilliant thinker. Yeah. And still is. Yeah. Still around, still writing brilliant books. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you mentioned his row with Carmen Khalil, but of course there were many famous feuds during that time. And the one that, that I always love the story of is Amanda Craig. Yes, this has been disputed actually quite a lot lately. I haven't noticed why, but um, uh, Amanda Craig, yeah, she, uh, well, when I was at the Standard, there had been this prize given out for a few years by the um, by Lord Longford's family, and it was because one of his daughters was killed in a car crash at the age of 20. And so the Catherine Packenham Award, it was called, and Amanda Craig won in the year that I was there with a marvellous, it was for young female journalists, which is what Catherine Packenham was, and she had she had done something rather clever, which was to spend two nights in an NHS hospital, just reporting on everything she saw and the people and the characters and so on. And she just made it a marvellously feeling bit of a reportage, which wasn't just wasn't just journalistic. It had little novelistic qualities too. Anyway, she was um, away away in a hack, as they say in Ireland, uh, from then on, and her first novel came out. And the second novel, called A Vicious Circle, was published and... Um, when it was in proof copy form, it went out to all the, uh, the literary editors, one of whom was called David Sexton. And uh, now they had, he and Amanda had been together at Cambridge and had been an item, as they used to say. And he read the book and looked at this figure, this uh, fictional character in it, and decided it was a bit, a bit too close to being him. There was one, I'm not sure exactly who the character was, but uh, there was another character who was a literary editor called Ivo Sponge. And he was a famous lecher. He was a famous lecher who was responsible for something called the Sponge Lunge. And <laughs> all the literary editors around the place, including moi, looked at this and thought, uh, excuse me, Amanda, what on earth? What, who is this? Anyway, so David Saxon got very furious about this and threatened to sue the publishers if they went ahead and published it. So they got rid of it. They, they cancelled publication. And, you know, with an eye to the main chance, another publisher, which I can't remember who exactly it was right now, another publisher picked up on it, uh, removed various offensive, supposedly offensive bits from it and went ahead and published it to great acclaim and everybody loved it. Yeah, but it's odd because Amanda has never really made the big time and I feel she should have done. She's written a series of kind of State of England novels, mm. I, th- I think is the uh, the genre we call it. And they're terribly well received, I think. Mm. But don't you uh, think if she'd been a man, the reception might have ah, been different? Is that it? No, no, I don't. I think, um, I think there weren't enough women being lauded in the 1980s. But, um, you know, people who are starting up there, people like Jeanette Winterson, for instance, with Orange is Not the Only Fruit, it's a rare sighting of a kind of a young, 
Yorkshire lass from nowhere writing a book about Pentecostalism and lesbianism in her first book. And um, the chapter headings are from, you know, they're like Deuteronomy, Judges, Ruth, they're all from the Bible, and this full of brand new folk stories. This is the least likely bestseller anywhere, mm. but everybody everybody read it, and everybody yeah. loved it. Yeah. And it went on a school curriculum about five minutes later because it was, it was so young and so edgy. And um, people like Rose Tremaine, you know, one of the really top three best prose writers in the nation. Mm. She produced um, a Restoration, which is a sensationally fabulous novel. It was all it's very Amos-like in its kind of close-up descriptions of physicality. I mean, the very first, um, in the very first chapter, there's a moment when the hero, Merivelle, uh, one of his co-students at a medical hospital, um, shows him a man who's had some sternum, has something wrong with his sternum during an operation, and there's a hole in his chest. And the man invites Merivelle to put his hand inside and hold his heart. And it's like, it sort of feels a bit obscene. It's like a part of an intrusion into the human body. But he discovers the man has no feeling in his heart. And this sensational, this fantastic moment of thinking of the organ of feeling according to British world culture for centuries. It's like, an, it's like Rose Tremaine making an announcement that says, this is a very physical thing, but it's also a weird anti-romantic statement that's been made here. Yes. Yeah, you know, people like... Well, Angela Carter, of course, uh, got started in the 60s, but in the 80s she became really spectacular. After the Bloody Chamber, the best collection of feminist stories you could imagine in the world. Uh, but Hilary Mantel, you know, who's now double booker. Uh, she's now a dame. She started then with um, Every Day is Mother's Day. And uh, she released about three novels in the 80s and suddenly she was flying. And Pat Barker, she later on to write uh, that fantastic trilogy about um, the First World War, the Regeneration Trilogy. The, these are considerable talents in the 80s and they stuck out like fabulous skyscrapers among the, among the even among the horrible men. Now, talking of horrible men, uh, your career was continuing with the Sunday Times and you encountered both Rupert Murdoch and Andrew Neil. Uh, Yes, yes. I'm not sure how far far I should go in talking about these because, I mean, Andrew was a tough guy. He was a really tough piece of work, um, particularly after my first editor at the Evening Standard. But God, he got things done. And I, I sort of admired him. I, I wondered why he had to be so confrontational. But it meant that people were on their toes all the time. And people really wanted to uh, please him. Well, in the sense they wanted to not get on the wrong side of him. So the conference would appear, conference when all the section editors get together and uh, uh, announce what's going to be in the paper in the coming Sunday. And then Andrew listens to them all, reads their lists of stuff and, you know, says marvellous or more likely, what in God's name is this rubbish? And we would all meet up and the atmosphere would be quite quite charged with uh, concern in case that somebody might be pulled up and people were quite regularly kind of confronted. But it was fine, it was fine. And he and I had various run-ins about things. When he said, uh, I see, what is this, um, what's going to be in the book section on, on Sunday, John? Oh, I see you're, you've, you've got the new biography of, uh, of Dickens by, by Peter Ackroyd, the, uh, the novelist guy. I don't know. Do people want to read that? I think maybe look at this biography of Arnold Schwarzenegger. I do think far more people would be keen to read about the, the great man than read about Dickens. I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think you know Dickens remains the number one favourite author of UK people, and has done for years and years and years, and still is. It's still he's, he's there right at the top. And this new biography of a thousand pages by the brilliant Peter Ackroyd, who's of course a great literary man. Um, I think you know. It's, it's just, I don't think so, so Andrew. So we had a bit of a Barney, and he said, I think. 
think, you know, to put um, Schwarzenegger on the front page and you could put Dickens anywhere else. And so I reached into my pocket. He said, I think I remember doing so, and said, look, here is 20 quid, Andrew. 20 quid says in three weeks' time, Dickens will be number one of the bestseller lists and the Schwarzenegger will be nowhere to be seen. And he said, if that happens, if that happens, it's only because you and people like you made it happen. And this is it. <laughs> you know, lots of journalists do actually think that uh, literary editors sit around in Perrier-filled rooms kind of deciding the fate of certain books and certain writers. You know, it ain't true at all. It's uh, just about goodness. So what makes a good critic then? Gosh, well, an awful lot of young critics uh, decide that the best way to acquire a reputation, and Amos is one of those, um, is to be really horrible about the, uh, the leading lights of the, uh, the current uh, literary scene. I don't think that's true. I think clarity, generosity and a certain stylish attack. I don't mean attacking them. I mean a certain stylish kind of a way of writing sentences that could be read twice with pleasure. Mm. That's what gets you noticed rather than saying this is a you know, pile of old, old nonsense by Iris Murdoch. And I think, yes, clarity about what, what the author is up to mm. and a certain kind of sophistication about, um, about deciding what, what genre this, this book is in, perhaps a certain elegance with which you're presenting your views. So it's, you, can't be too, you can't be too shy about it, you can't be too brash about it. Mm. And I suppose the talent of the literary editor is those pairings of getting the right person to review the right book. Well, the art of the literary editor is to surround yourself with people who are experts in various fields, like, say, biography, like, say, science. And, um, you know, if you, are, if you are reviewing, you know, A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking, you need to have somebody who is not necessarily the, the most brilliant scientist in the world, but somebody who can explain what Hawkins himself is trying to explain. You know what I mean? Somebody who will, be, who will meet the reader somewhere between the, the genius who's writing an, an impenetrable book and the reader is you need a bloke in the middle who will say what he's trying to do is this. Mm. But in terms of putting people together, I mean, I, I like going out on a bit of a limb sometimes. And I knew, I talked to Margaret Drabble, the great novelist of the 60s, and uh, discovered how keen she was on um, on foreign policy and foreign wars. So I, I asked her to review a book about Cambodia and the bombing of Cambodia. She was fabulous. Who could see that yeah. coming? Just meeting people and, and realising where their passions might lie. Yeah. I mean, there are so many wonderful parties in the book and so many great love affairs and so much scandalous behaviour and all sorts of people. I mean, people who are still very much around, still very prominent. I'm thinking of Christopher McLehose and his wonderful, colourful past with uh, Marianne Faithful and so on. Or uh, Caroline Michelle, who, of course, was fragrant and glamorous then and remains so now. Caroline Michelle is astonishing. Yes, yeah, she was... Uh, she was beautiful. She was incredibly soigné. She was um, a beautiful laugher. And um, she had this air about her that um, she would smile and be lovely and beautiful and fab and talk to you and so on, just so far enough. And after that, she'll get rather bored. And I love the way she would use her hair. Uh, she had this mane of, uh, of, mane of dark brown hair. She, had, she wore tons of lipstick. She was beautiful. She is the daughter of a commodities dealer from Germany, but we always said he's an arms dealer, obviously, because she was so sort of stylish. And she would do this thing. It's a shame we're on the radio rather than doing this visually, but she would, as you talked and talked at her about whatever was on your mind, just to try and keep her attention on you, she would lean sideways sort of to the right like that. You think, is she... Is she okay? And she sort of leaned her head sideways and suddenly gather her mane of hair up 
with her upturned hand and whoomph it over her head to the other side. Um, the most distracting gesture in the world. <laughs> there was a lot of hair and this beautiful face suddenly going whang, woof, like that. And it was, um, you suddenly stopped talking immediately. You, couldn't, you could not go on because, because Miss Michelle's hair was so dramatic. And it was, kind of a, it was a way of saying, could you possibly shut up, this good man? <clears throat> now, one person everybody was trying to shut up was Salman Rushdie, of course, and there was the whole row over the satanic verses. Uh, yes, yes. Salman, yes. Well, well, Salman, of course, won the Booker Prize in 1981 with Midnight's Children. Uh, he had published one book before called Grimus, um, but it was, it was it was got nowhere. So suddenly, sort of out of the traps at a very, a very young age, he was at the spear carrier for this new generation, just as much as Martin and Ian McEwen. And he was it was amazing. I found uh, I found it quite quite hard going because because I recognised where it was coming from. I'd known, I'd noticed that so many books that have won the Booker Prize in the last decade were about the subject of India, They're by Indian authors or by British authors writing about Indian masses, like *The Siege of Krishnapur* by J.G. Farrell, and it was as if I could hear, I could hear this Salman Rushdie kind of slightly seething about all these sort of books on the subject of India, which didn't have any Indianness about them. Mm. Even when it was you know, V.S. Naipaul writing, writing about an Indian merchant, he had the voice of a bloke, of car dealer from Surrey. It was just wrong, you know. So Salman Rushdie invented a language for Anglo-Indian uh, writing. He did nothing, an enormous ambition, enormously fulfilled. And he had several different levels of writing. He had the kind of slightly mad uh, servant speak, which was full of full of weird sort of uh, slang. He had this kind of uh, middle-class wives shouting at their husbands' language, which was incredibly elaborate and imaginative. And he had this kind of rather posh Indian potentate speak, which was almost exactly like English, uh, only, only posher and dealt more in metaphors. He had three different levels of discourse going on here. But also there was lots of bits of um, foreign writing. You could recognise uh, various tropes from the writing of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, for instance, you could see, oh, look, here's a bit of a nod to Laurence Stern, the author of uh, uh, Tristram Shandy, the British uh, novel from the 1770s. And you, you work out all these things that Salman was kind of signalling wildly, I want to be in this company. I found it a bit, I found it all a bit too much. It was a bit too much. It was too desperately kind of racing around the higgledy-piggledy kind of uh, this here, that there. It was, uh, it's, your attention was being snagged every few seconds by something else. I found it, frankly, exhausting. Um, but I was in the minority. What do, what do I know? It, uh, Midnight's Children won the Booker. And when the Titanic Verses came out in 1988, in October, it was shortlisted, the third of his novels to be shortlisted. And exactly, what was it, uh, two months later, on Valentine's Day, uh, February 14th, 1989, that's when the fatwa was visited upon him by the Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran. And he had to go into hiding under police police escort. Um, I'm not quite sure what to say about it because I spent four pages describing all the events that led up to this. Mm. And um, the only thing is I, I was called on by the papers to say, you're the literary editor. Nobody understands what is bugging the, the Muslim Brotherhood so much, these people. What on earth is it they're complaining about? We don't really understand. So I had to look through uh, the book. It's all the insults or supposed insults are all in Chapter 2 when he has... He has various remarks about the Prophet Muhammad, whom God preserve, etc., etc., and that was that was deemed blasphemous by people all over the place. And I just, uh, I did, I tried. I, I rang up, um, I rang up a, a Muslim journalist who was who had published a magazine in which he'd put in some of these insults in a carefully edited way. And I rang up and talked to him and said, "What exactly is it about these statements? I don't understand how they are insulting." And he says, he tried to explain it, and then he said, look, Mr Walsh, it's like this. 
if somebody insulted your father, would you retaliate? I said, well, I'd probably write them a stern letter or something. He said, yes, well, if somebody insulted your mother, would you retaliate? I said, yes, yes, I would. If somebody insulted your child, would you? And I said, yeah, why? Yes, of course. He said, well, then, if somebody insults your God, which is the most important thing in your life and is inside you, would you not retaliate all the more? And he got more and more furious down the phone. And said, I said, you know, we are, lots of us are believers in this country. I was brought up a Catholic. We believe that uh, God exists somewhere and that you can pray to him for, you know, to be delivered from your problems, or you pray to the Virgin Mary if you're a Catholic to intercede with God. But, you know, you can stand back from all these things and laugh at them. You can laugh at the Ten Commandments and say it's a, you know, it's just a, a list of seven self-evident things you shouldn't really do for, to, if you're going to keep a society, and three added-on bits of religion at the top. You can take the mick. And he said, yes, but, yes, but we, we have no interest in your fatuous notions of religion if you don't recognise an insult when you see it. Mm. And we had to just leave it there. But it was amazing to be part of the discussion yeah, and to absolutely. try and explain what was going on to the Thunderstruck readership of the Sunday Times. John, just having a, an overall look back then, that was a, an extraordinary decade for, for, for British literature, for British publishing. Mm. And I wonder how you see it changing now and what's coming next. Well, I'm really puzzled because I, I, I feel so unable to pontificate about, about the current publishing world because I spent the last two years rereading all the stuff from the 80s. And what I've read of the, the modern world isn't really enough to sort of have a judgment. I, I did go public and say that I cannot quite understand. While I really admire people like, say, Zadie Smith, I really couldn't get what on earth was happening with uh, the Sally Rooney fan club because I found her book extraordinarily thin, thin and uh, not terribly interesting kind of young adult novel about a, about a schoolgirl who has a crush on this rather sort of fanciable sportsman and who is rather a horrid disappointment on prom night when he takes another girl to it. What on earth are we reading? What on earth? It was just a sort of badly, not terribly well-written, sort of unadventurous thing. I didn't like it at all. But, you know, it's put against that someone like Zadie Smith, who was uh, emerged in the year 2000 with white teeth and has just gone on being utterly brilliant mm. and a brilliant essayist and a brilliant reteller of another book. Um, one of her books is a remaking of Howard's End and the Schlegel Sisters. There are some some novels out now which I've read with absolute joy. There's uh, Just last week on holiday I was reading a thing called Light Perpetual by... Um, by uh, Francis Bufford, who I've read before. He wrote uh, The Boy That Books Built. But an astonishingly bold uh, look at five kids who were killed in a V2 rocket. Sorry, these are all fictional kids, but he imagines the lives they would have led in the 20th century. It's a very dangerous thing to do because it means you'll be looking at key moments of the 20th century, like, you know, Thatcherism, um, 9-11, Something the great crash of, of the great crash of two thousand eight, you know, key moments. And but he he does it with such extraordinary kind of evocation of, of people in different moods and different attitudes, and you believe in them completely. And he writes these wonderful long, long, long scenes, which you are absolutely wrapped up in, mm. not just because you are by the pool and you've nothing else to do, but because <laughs> it's so incredibly engrossing, and yeah. you really buy these people and their relationships. And by the end of the book, you're almost in tears. It's so they're so close to you. Uh, Circus of Dreams, Adventures in the 1980s Literary World is by John Welsh. It's published by Constable. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull, Annabelle Martin and Christy O'Grady. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app, from SoundCloud, MixCloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>